what we're talking about is infection control and patient safety. I don't think that changes no matter where you're located. Um, you're right, the legal liability may change based upon jurisdiction, but when you get right down to it, taking care of your patients, taking care of your staff, I would love to see that be the same no matter where you're sitting. Welcome to the Coronavirus Business Response Series of Inside Reproductive Health. Here, you'll be updated on the latest insights on managing and owning a fertility business or IVF center during the COVID-19 pandemic. We put out free podcasts, webinars, and articles as soon as new topics arise, so make sure to subscribe to stay updated. The best way to help us in return is to share this episode with someone in the fertility field that would find it useful. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Dr. Giovanna Lekovich is practicing at RMA of New York. She joined that group in 2017. She is a New York gal. She did her training at Cornell for both residency and fellowship. And Dr. Lekovich, you said your specialty is in the onco, is, is you have a special interest in onco for preservation? Yeah, exactly. I, I take care of a lot of the um, onco oncology patients or patients who need to free fertility in addition to just bread and butter infertility service. Well, thank you for representing both the REI community and the New York side of thing. Lisa Reinhardt, I've known for longer than five minutes. And Lisa, when I was doing the webinar with Dr. Katz and Taylor and Jeff from Engaged MD, and I saw your name in the attendees, I thought, oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I should have had, I should have probably had Lisa on as a panelist for this webinar. So we're taking care of that now. And the reason why I want to have Lisa as a panelist is because she's worn so many hats and does wear so many hats. Uh, in addition to having been a fertility nurse, she is an RN. She is also has the letters JD after her name. She is an attorney. So she's involved with the NPG group. That's the nurses pro group, the, the LPG group, that's the legal group within ASRM, as well as ARM, which is the reproductive managers group. She has her own company called Legal Care Consulting and a really unique perspective as an attorney and as a nurse. And Ms. Reinhardt, I am happy to have you on the program as well. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Griffin. And please call me Lisa. You scare me when you call me Ms. Reinhardt. <laughs> well, everyone that listens to the show knows that I like to start with the honorific. And then we get into first names as, uh, as we, we let, go. let our collars down and be a little more uh, comfortable. Um, so maybe we can just give, we can start high level because we've had a number of questions in advance. And but before we dig into those, maybe we can give just at a high level of if we've all been, for, for those of you that are experts, you've been experts for about two months in, in terms of COVID-19 and, and standard operating procedures. Maybe give us a little bit of background on, on how you're deciding to make the standard operating procedures that, that you are or, or have recommended up to this point, and then we'll start dissecting what they are individually. You know what, I'm just going to kind of give you a little bit of an overview since I've been doing SOPs for quite a while, um, even when many moons ago when I worked in the hospital. And it's, you know, why do we write SOPs to begin with? And I think that's where when you look at COVID is where you have to start. You know, you write them to give your staff, patients, management, whatever, some direction. You write to make sure that you are in compliance with any laws or any professional standards that are out there. And then you write them to ensure patient safety, staff safety, and to do training. So 
I think all of us can see that with a brand new event that not only came in as a novel virus, but as totally changed the way we were living, the way we were working, and now how we're going to reopen that we absolutely need to have some direction. They're kind of scary when you call them SOPs, but when you just call them, let's give everybody direction. Now we kind of know where we're going. And so what they are, are step-by-step processes that are going to help us understand how to perform a task and how to do it consistently and hopefully how to do it well. Writing them, a lot of places have formats, but basically what is the specific piece or task you're doing? How to start an IV, for example. Um, Who's going to do it? What equipment do you need, if anything? And then what's the process? What is the exact process that you want? I always add in there references, which I think sometimes we forget. All of us can come up with stuff on the fly, especially those of us that have been doing our jobs for a while. Oh yeah, fine, I can tell you how to do it. But if somebody wants to go back and check as to why you put that step in there, it's really very, very helpful to put references in. So I think moving forward as we start to look at what SOPs do we need, we need to look at why we're doing it, what we have to do, and then I venture to say, you need a key person in your organization. And maybe Giovanni, you can talk about that. Somebody who's going to be the go-to for helping direct how these SOPs are written, and who's also going to be able to help monitor them. Because that's a big piece of this, is we can write anything we want. If you put it on a shelf and nobody does it, it really doesn't help us. It doesn't give us the direction we need. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I second everything, Lisa, that you just said. I think that we are one of the organizations that really, uh, in everything that we do, whether that's, you know, how we handle a CMV positive donor sperm or whether it's, you know, a, a deadly viral pandemic, we rely a lot on SOPs and on protocols because... Once you reach the, the clinic or organization of this side and handling literally thousands of patients a year, you really have to rely on them to stay consistent and to provide the best quality care. And so obviously there are SOPs in place that we all as a group have been org- in, in organized fashion, have been writing and have been collecting all the data as physicians and have been determining on how, how to go in this situation. The problem is not having the guidelines. And so you know, in the words of our governor um, from the other day with one of his interviews, I really also like the idea of going stone to stone across the morass, which also is an important thing to remember that going into an untapped situation that nobody really knows how to handle, obviously having a plan, safety first for both patients and employees, following the guidelines, following the guidance from medical societies as well as, you know, po- politically and from the government, and also every step of the way formed. And you might not know the whole path, but firm stone after firm stone and just having sort of all of these things in mind, being inventive when certain situations also appear. You cannot put everything in the SOP. But I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, in order to um, ensure that the organization um, or the, you know, the centralization of how we are organized and how we make sure that these measures have been followed by, by everyone 
really trickles down through the field operations, through our medical director, through our CEO, and through all the physicians, really, and through different managers of different services within our organization, which is the nursing manager, the IVF coordinator manager, finance department managers. And so we're all, just as long as we're all on the same page, it's important having those plans in place. So Lisa, how much of it, of, of what's new, how much of it is brand new standard operating procedures versus addendums to existing SOPs? You know, you bring up the what you've got already, and I think that's always a good starting point. Most of us have had what we call disaster plans. So that gives you some place to start when you feel that your entire operation has been blown up and you have to start over again. Um, We've also taken care of patients with infectious disease. That is not something that's new to anybody who's been trained in medicine. And so you can take some of the procedures that you already have and adapt them. What's going to be a little bit different, I think, is the extreme of it. Because COVID is turning out to be something that is much more easily spread than we realized. It's a much more fluid situation. Um, So you're going to have to adapt some of your policies and procedures to encompass social distancing. We've taken care of infectious patients before, but we never said you had to be six feet apart from their partner or from your staff, you know, the person you're Or that their partner can't come to the office. Exactly. I mean, that's been very- And and I'm I'm interrupting you, Lisa, but I'm just, you made me think of, of how quickly this has all moved. I remember- I think it was March 13th talking with my sister and saying, yeah, we're thinking about not letting our clients, we're talking with our clients about not letting partners come into the office. And my sisters and I are just no. <laughs> and lo and behold, <laughs> and now every, every single one of our clients has asked Great. partners to, to stay home. So please continue. Your, your point was that uh, we've, we've dealt with infectious diseases before, but some of these considerations we hadn't even dreamt of. We didn't because before it would be you would isolate the person and whoever was going to take care of them would protect themselves, go take care of them and come back. And you could still go have coffee with you know your colleague. You could still go take care of other patients. That's not the same. Um, and so I think where you can use some of your policies and procedures as a basis, we're going to have to be a little bit more creative on other areas, which is kind of fun for me. I love going through workplaces and just saying, how else can we do this? Um, how can we sit six or eight feet apart and still let people do their jobs? Can we let our staff work from home? Can we job share? What are we going to do about team staffing, which I'm sure comes up? I think it actually makes you think outside, and I hate the term outside the box, but it is outside the box. The other thing I will mention, though, is the organizations that have really been studying this longer than maybe some of us have put together some unbelievable frameworks for us to use. The CDC has a lot of information that makes it much easier to adapt your policies and procedures or write new ones with regard to the coronavirus. And so I say to you, go to the CDC, go to the WHO websites, go to ACOG. It'll make your job a whole lot easier. I wanted to ask you about that, Giovanna, because you mentioned that a problem is either having or not having guidelines and how use guidelines to inform the standard operating procedures. Lisa mentioned the CDC. RMA of New York is a pretty large practice. It's in a large market. So in addition to ASRM and others, the Fertility Providers Alliance, and as Lisa mentioned, CDC, 
you, you mentioned the importance of guidelines. Whose guidelines should people look to draw from the most? I mean, I can tell you how it went between, you know, different IVF centers. Some of us are affiliated with hospitals and so naturally would follow or would adopt some of these policies because they've been written already and you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You can adapt it, as Lisa said. A lot of it was really sharing information between different centers, collegial sort of discussion of what this center is doing, why are they following that guideline, and, and then really trying to make it work in your environment because not every waiting room is the same, not every patient population will be the same, and you might not have to deal with certain things as you know some other centers might have to deal with, which would be, let's say, you know, having 150 patients in the morning during monitoring hours. Not every center needs to deal with that difficulty, and, and so how do you overcome that, and how do you think inventively to, you know, still provide care with volume and, and not, you know, while, while following the guidelines. So, you know, I know that, you know, talking to some of my colleagues who are affiliated with Cornell, obviously following local guidelines from the hospitals and applying them into their setting. Uh, we applied a lot of the things from the Sinai hospitalized hospital guidelines. Um, CDC is a great resource. Uh, I would say WHO, and then really just sharing information, being a united front. All of us are in this together. And I always said that, you know, 14 or 15 or 100 heads are smarter than one. If we're driven by the same goal, which is to resume and to be able to uh, safely provide care to our patients, I think it's very inventive and advanced to think all together as well. Maybe I'll direct this one to you, Lisa, since it is about liability. Normally when I give the disclaimer, I always say, I am not an attorney, you are, but I think we, we give the famous disclaimer that this isn't particular counsel, this is not particular legal advice, but rather insights. And the question is, is the practice liable if a patient without symptoms infects an employee? So I, I'm, I'm guessing this means you know they've, they've screened for symptoms is what they're asking, and then an employee isn't infected is infected by an asymptomatic person that passed through their symptom screening, can the practice be liable if their, if their employee is infected? You know, this isn't the first time that I've heard this question, and I'm sure we're all thinking that. What if it isn't just our employee who gets infected? What if it's one of our patients who gets infected? So have it go the other way. And Again, I can only give general advice. I'm only licensed in one state, but I can tell you first and foremost, you can be sued for just about anything. So that's the first answer, okay? You have a willing plaintiff, there will be a lawsuit. In this particular- well, There's a willing plaintiff, there's a willing lawyer. You got it. And I don't condone it. I don't do malpractice at all. But I will say it's going to be, one of the things you have to prove is that somewhere there was negligence. Because that's probably going to be the main claim, is that somebody was negligent along the way, which fits in with why you need to have some, you know, SOPs that people are trained in and are following. But then they also have to prove that you are the ones that actually caused the injury. In this particular arena with this novel coronavirus, it is going to be very, very difficult to prove that a person got the coronavirus from Denise, the nurse. How are you possibly going to do that if they're out and about in any type of society? You would have had to have them completely isolated from anybody else but Denise, the nurse. So that's where I think a lot of these are going to fall down. And again, you know, yes, there will be 
creative lawsuits, but do I really think that a practice, if they're following good safety measures and following their own SOPs, are they going to be held liable? I think it's going to be a really difficult case. I can't say never because stranger lawsuits have happened. I just don't see how it would actually even get through the entire court system. It'd be very difficult to prove. The next might be a question that falls in both of your wheelhouses, which is which actions do you take when a staff member or a patient or any visitor encounters symptoms after they've visited your clinic? So maybe you get a phone call from the next day, a staff member or a patient, and I was there three days ago, or I was there five days ago, whatever it might be, and I've tested positive. What happens then? Giovanna, you want to say what's what happened in your center since I know you have SOPs. The the plan in place in that situation is to basically we, we haven't been doing any testing yet until their validity is proven. And so we've been referring the patients with, let's say, you know, she's calling with symptoms, then the plan will be to refer her to either urgent care or her primary care physician to get tested. If she's calling and being positive. Um, given that we're just slowly starting to go back uh, after being closed for almost six weeks, is starting to go back and, and, you know, treating patients. The first and foremost, we cannot treat patients. They, our patients know that once they're starting any of the treatment cycles, whether that be uh, ovulation induction or, you know, IVF or frozen embryo transfer cycle, their cycle will have to be discontinued. Again, as per the guidelines of ASRM, obviously. And so the patients would be, again, referred we did not want to mention in our SOPs or to adopt or hijack the omni of the care for the patient in that scenario. So the patient would have to obviously follow up with a doctor, either infectious disease physician or a primary care physician who treat their condition. What we have been doing with primary and secondary and tertiary contacts, I think it depends on when you're asking me this question. If this is, you know, March 7th, um, you know, and this would have happened, we would have obviously quarantined them uh, as per DOH recommendations for primary, secondary, tertiary contacts. But, you know, nowadays, if you ask me that, somebody who got into contact with a patient that has been positive, you might, you might go into a liquor store and, and, you know, get the infection or might just be walking the sidewalk from your building to the, to the car or something in New York City and, and, not really being able to, to, I mean, every one of us is what I'm trying to say. It has been in at least secondary or tertiary, if not the primary contact with somebody who's been infected. So nowadays, again, it's a situation that obviously requires a discussion, but that's how we would be dealing with it. Either quarantine them or monitor for symptoms or test them. You can't and I add anything to that, Lisa? You know what, I just would add, um, and I totally agree with that approach, and I think most departments of public health are saying that, but I think it also depends on the extent of the contact. If this was just a very superficial contact, she came in, had blood drawn, the person had, you know, who drew the blood had PPE, she goes home and three days later you hear, chances are that there was not a lot of time spent. If, however, that person happened to have been in your office, wasn't wearing a face covering, sneezed onto a SNAF person that wasn't wearing a face covering, now you may want to treat it very differently, which is why I think a lot of practices are adopting face coverings for their staff, which here in Illinois, we're required to do by our governor's mandate, just to prevent those kinds of things from happening. Because 
if my, you know, no face covering direct contact happened, then you may want to send the staff person home to quarantine. Other than that, they're probably just going to self-monitor as they would be doing anyway, meaning they're checking their temperatures, they're letting their supervisors know if they don't feel well. And if somebody, one of your staff gets sick, you're sending them home and telling them to go see their doctors. It sounds like there's a big range in there. Giovanna, we have a, a question that asks about where, when, and how to test patients. So I have heard of mm-hmm. clinics that are using PCR tests for every patient. Right. Um, I can't imagine that everyone is doing that, but which test do you use? Do you use PCR tests? Do you use antibody tests? Or where, when, and how do you decide which patients to test? So we actually haven't been using any testing so far until we see we're probably going to be going for the saliva nucleic acid rapid test once the validity of the test has been proven because again as Lisa mentioned earlier having references having the reasons why you do certain things have to be documented in your SOPs and your plans so so far on one hand, we have tests that have been not, had not been validated that can be done elsewhere. We haven't been testing our patients. We've been screening them, um, obviously, um, with questionnaires the day before they're coming in, as well as the day off coming to the office. All the patients have to be wearing protection and their temperatures being checked upon the entry into the floor or into our office. We will probably be going for testing and what a lot of, or some of the practices are starting to do is what I hear from my, from my colleagues and my friends who are at other practices is that potentially starting to do a rapid test, either ELISA or the, you know, the, the rapid test uh, at the beginning of the cycle. The question is, okay, you've done it at the beginning of the cycle. Do you then have to do it every day? What if they got on the way back home, they uh, took an Uber or they went to buy a bottle of wine and got infected from, you know, a guy in a liquor store, do you have to test them daily then? If you have tested them for the viral presence, or if you did a PCR, even testing patients for antibodies, you know, doesn't seem to be that helpful because they might have an immunity that might be gone in a week or a month or three months or a year. This is why we're, we're actually not tapping into testing as of yet. We're still relying on screening and social distancing in our offices and protection, obviously, and protective equipment. But those are some of the things that we are considering and we're discussing as a group. I venture that as much as whoever asked that question wanted to know the when, where, and how, often the underlying is what is everyone else doing? And so we'll have, we'll have somewhat of an answer for you very shortly from our 21-person sample size or 22-person sample size. So the majority of practices are not testing for COVID-19, although we do have a few that are testing every patient, which is interesting. Lisa, did you want to add anything to that? No, I don't think so. I mean, I agree with Giovanna. I think that it's still kind of all over the board as to the what is the usefulness of the test itself. I know some practices in the Midwest are testing at the start of ovulation induction to at least give themselves some sense of security that they made an attempt to find out who may be actively shedding the virus or not. But as Giovanna said, how does that help you 10 days from now? Um, it I really know does. one thing that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Lisa, but- That's okay. Um, just wanted to, one, one, the only situation that comes into mind 
as to where or why would this be helpful would be really to identify those who have the antibodies who could be donating plasma for covalescent plasma, which has been do being done at Sinai and being used to treat the most, most severely ill mm -hmm. patients. I, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I really don't see, that's exactly right. I don't see the usefulness of it. Dr. Adamson brings up a point about the usefulness in one particular circumstances because there are so many unknowns about the virus and the antibody test they can't be relied upon, except in that a positive test for virus could be used to cancel medical procedures and quarantine the individual. Sure. Correct. And I think most, you know, providers that had somebody with a positive test or positive symptoms are, they're going to cancel treatment and they're going to quarantine. So, or suggest the patient quarantine. We can't just put our patients in quarantine all by ourselves. Hey everyone, it's Griffin. This is the break in the show where normally I do a little commercial for our small engagement. And we do have a small engagement that's relevant to the COVID-19 business response. If you're cutting marketing, if you're trying to bring back your people as quickly as possible, if you're trying to build a cache of treatment ready patients, we do have that. But I would rather use this break to just ask if you find this useful, if you would share it with a colleague, either via email or on social media, we're doing everything we can to put out as many webinars, articles, free podcasts, all free resources to include as many people from the field as we possibly can to give you resources on how to manage and operate a fertility business or an IVF center during this time. And it's changing so quickly. So if you find this useful, I would really appreciate it if you would please share it with a colleague via email or via social media and help us grow the audience, but only if you find it valuable. And hopefully you are and back to your program. We have a question about alternating teams. And I want to know if you've seen this, Lisa, when this was all first starting to happen. So this is pre-ASRM guidelines, which I think for the first time, guidance, which came first came out on the 27th of March. This was pre that and I, I was speaking to one physician who said that they had split their teams. They have A teams and B teams, clinic, lab, and office. A team comes in at 5.30 or 6 in the morning, whatever it is. They stay till noon and uh, there's a 15-minute gap and where they leave, get in their cars and go while team B is in their parking lots, comes in 15 minutes later after the entire office has it been sprayed and disinfected and, and they never interact with one another. The nursing team A is always on team A, team B is always on team B. Have you seen this and how is it working? I actually have talked to a couple centers that are doing it and they're doing it essentially to try and conserve resources in case they get an outbreak among their staff so that they can also tell who had contact with whom and they can, you know, so if a person on team A is positive and they know what the contact was on that team, they can isolate more effectively than they would have been able to do otherwise. I've also seen teams used as one team is on for a week and then they work at home for a week and they're doing it that way back and forth. My understanding is this is what's happening in some of the ERs. I have and really proud of my niece who just graduated nursing school working in an ER in Milwaukee. And that's what they've done is they've divided into teams and it's a way to make sure that they can help protect their staff as much as possible. 
in the Midwest, we haven't really gotten up to full speed again, how that's going to work over time. You're stretching your resources. And for all the small practices out there, I have no idea how they would be able to do that because you just don't have enough staff to be, to be able to cut them in half. Makes it hard. Javon, what, what about at RMA? Are you all splitting into A team and B team? How is workflow being divided? Exactly how we've been practicing at every level, really, um, up until really two days ago when we slowly started opening up. But pretty much anybody who, first of all, anybody who doesn't need to be there in person, which would be IVF coordinators, finance advisors, um, some of the nursing staff, people are just working from home, and then physicians, uh, nurses, as well as the embryologist is the most important part and most vital part of our team have been working in teams so that you're always within a certain team exactly for what the reason that Lisa mentioned, which is, you know, if there's, if one of the team members would get sick or would develop symptoms and the teams would be separated into, into days and some of them into hours of the day, but mostly in, into, you know, one day is one team, team A and then team B, uh, you will be able to easier track the contacts of that person and to monitor for symptoms or to then do the testing of the other ones and thus keeping the workflow and being able to have more hands on the deck. And again, this is one of the policies or interventions that we have implemented um, and that we have adopted from Mount Sinai because this is how our physicians have been, our OBGYN um, physicians have been working on labor and delivery floor. Pretty much all of our fellows got redeployed. So we're obviously monitoring that as well. And our fellows have been working in different teams on labor and delivery as well as in the emergency room. So this is, I think it's a good strategy. I don't know, Lisa, what you think, but I think it's a smart strategy when you're dealing with such a contagious, predictably contagious disease that spreads so easily and, and, and you still have to get the job done. No, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, if you can make it work, um, it certainly makes sense. You would hate to have your entire embryology team exposed. And how could you move for, you know, nurses can't do that. Um, You can, you know, as you said, redeploy people to do a lot of different things, but there are certain positions that you just can't fill and you can't learn that quickly. So if you can do it, I think it's a great strategy. One of our questions, and, and ladies, you may have seen this. I'm not sure exactly what they're asking when they say how to, homon- how to homogenize the input in IVF to have a stable activity without peak. What I, I'm guessing is their backlog of, of cycles that didn't happen in March and April. I'm, I'm taking it to mean of how do they distribute that, especially if these are, are cycles that were already paid for without maybe you know just having two weeks where everyone is burned out working every hour they can? How do they distribute that better? Do you infer the question differently? And if not, how would you answer it? You know, I was a little unsure. So I appreciate the explanation that you just gave, Griffin. I might be faking the funk, Lisa. Yeah, there you go. But, you know, we'll make, the, we'll make it fit how, what we can answer. Um, I am hearing from practices that they have kind of divided their patients into who they consider more urgent than others. Some are doing as who is more ready, who could, you know, where their cycle was falling if they didn't keep them on birth control or something else. That's how they're getting them in. Everybody is pacing though, again, because you don't want to have this huge onslaught 
at the same time when, I mean, we do have to take into consideration that many geographic areas have not hit their peaks from what we are being told with the infection rate. And that some, as they start to open up and go back to work, we are going to see another increase in the virus. So both of those are going to impact the availability of your staff and maybe how the patients are going to be able to move through. So those are the two ways I've seen it does. Some, some are more urgent than others, perhaps based on age, AMH, what other parameters, and some are more prepared to move forward. Giovanna, what are you seeing in your center? I mean, that's, um, thank you, Lisa. That's exactly what we've been trying to do as we're obviously when the first Israel guidance came through and, you know, mid-March, we just stopped all treatments. We still had to take care of a couple hundreds of patients that were actively in treatment in the middle of IVF. You can't just leave them unretrieved with, you know, dilated ovaries. I mean, having an ovarian torsion you know, gives a much higher risk of ending up in the ER at the time of COVID and diverting resources from COVID patients. So there were also pregnancies that had been conceived before the um, the first guidance came out. So we had to sort of obviously wrap those up, treat those patients, see them through, stop all the actions. And so as we've been slowly starting to um, reopen, I remember that at that time, what was really important because we had, you know, shelter in place in New York State, and for those patients who really needed to still come for their treatments and complete their pre- treatments that had been previously started, we have issued a letter to each patient that they are supposed to show to a police officer if they get stopped in the street because, you know, that was the condition in New York in, in March and beginning of April. Now, as we're slowly starting to, to treat the patients, obviously, how you, and, and that's a very good point, Griffin, that it just shows a very good understanding of IVF process on your end, is that you control the number of patients you're going to have in the operating room or in the recovery room by the number of patients you're starting. Here or there, you might have 22 retrievals as opposed to 17. I mean, we're a huge center. And so for us, that's not a big difference. But in this setting, where you cannot have as many patients in the recovery room because you have to have distancing. You cannot do a schedule procedures every 15 or 20 minutes because you have to ensure social distancing of partners in production rooms, of patients coming in and getting screened, of patients in the recovery room. We've been controlling, and that, that's really how you control it. I remember learning that this from Fornell, really controlling how many starts do we have today. You need to know how many patients you're starting. So even if somebody ends up being triggered and retrieved a day early and somebody a day later, those are still not huge differences that you might see on a daily basis. So you basically have to see what your capacity is. Obviously, for each center, it might be different because... You know, not all of us have the same number of physicians, nursing staff that can help in the recovery room, not the same number of beds in recovery room, not the same number of, you know, examination rooms, uh, operative rooms, and a number of anesthesiologists. But that's exactly where you need to control that bottlenecking is how many patients you're starting every day. And so for us, that has been a certain number that, you know, depending on how many physicians we have and, you know, if we are able to continue working with the full capacity, it would have been maybe one patient from each physician every day or one patient from each physician every other day to be able to start. If a slot goes unfilled, it can be filled by a different, you know, somebody else's patient, or if there's a patient that needs to start more urgently, 
you know, speaking of those criteria, that is also very important. And so all of the physicians sort of prepare their own patients that'll be going into the treatments as we're opening up slowly. And as Lisa mentioned, these criteria really are driven by, there's like a whole algorithm that we're using, but it's basically driven by their age, by their AMH, you know, obviously cancer patients or patients who have a medical condition that might diminish their fertility and who have to be treated. Those are definitely more urgent patients. There are patients that we're not treating as of yet, and I'm sure it might be a different question, but, you know, patients who, um, who uh, have a BMI that we used to, uh, were able to manage that, you know, knowing the high BMI is one of the um, uh, significant risk factors for the most severe COVID-19 disease, those patients might have to wait. Uh, also patients with comorbidities, including asthma, hypertension, uh, we're just becoming much more strict when it comes to those conditions, because if a patient is to get sick, especially if a patient is to get pregnant and then sick with those comorbidities, that patient is um, at a higher risk of getting of getting sicker and and needing a hospital treatment, and so so there are definitely some we, we put a lot of thought into this and a lot of criteria, and then it's another SOP for us. Connie wants to know if the clinic tests who is responsible for their care if positive. So most of the folks answered that they're not testing, but there were a few that are. So let's say you get a positive, then who's responsible for their care? And then I asked, uh, just because I think you could take that a few different ways, or you could have a few questions that offshoot from that and said, you know, if you cancel an IVF cycle, a sign off to a PCP. What's the responsibility of the REI if they do test positive? I think that is the same care that we would give to any patient where we found some other illness or condition is you hand them off to another physician. So if somebody were to test positive for COVID-19 right now, most of the CDC WHO guidelines, et cetera, say you have to have them contact their primary care physician so that you're not just saying we're canceling you and we don't treat this because we don't treat it. We're not primary treaters of COVID-19. But, you know, just if you were to find something else in your patient, if, you know, we find diabetes, hepatitis C. Yeah, we don't take care of it. We send them to an endocrinologist. So I think, you know, you need to just make sure that they get back to their primary care physician. Whether you want to do follow-up on that or not, it depends. Do you have a policy if you send somebody back to their physician for an illness that you always follow up, then my recommendation is always follow your policies. Don't make this an exception. Lisa, in the beginning when this was happening, there were people that, and this is pre-ASRM guidance, back in the early days of (laughs) mid-March when people were It was like years ago. (laughs) Yeah, it was years ago, I think. Not kidding. It really does feel that way. I feel like it's finally gotten back to week to week, you know, whereas at that time it was hour to hour hour, how rapidly everything was changing. And one of the things that people were starting to offer or to consider was just to, to say, if you, if you have to cancel your, your cycle, that it will be refunded by the, the practice. Some of the pharmacies and the manufacturers added on to that, that if you test positive during a cycle, we'll refund your medication or will at least allow you to, to reorder with a credit of the same value when you restart. Is that required, Lisa? Are most people doing that now? What can you advise with, re- with respect to refunds and restarts? I have not seen anything that says it's required. Okay. Meaning that if a patient has paid you for services that you've provided and they get sick with 
the novel coronavirus that you have to give them their money back. Again, I go back to one, I think this is a time when people are being extremely generous and I would never discourage that because we wanna make sure that our patients and our staff are healthy and anything we can do to help them, I think is appropriate. But to, you know, we have to let our patients know ahead of time. So as we're starting back, if our patients start treatment and we make a decision as an individual practice that if you make prepayments and we have to stop you, you will still owe us for the work we did and it's spelled out up front and the patient's aware of it, that shouldn't be a problem as long as you're transparent with your patients. But as far as anything that requires reimbursing them because they get sick with this, I have not seen anything at all. I, it's up to the individual practice. Giovanna, did RMA try this at any point? Fortunately, we haven't been facing, we haven't faced this situation as of yet. Uh, we certainly discussed it again as a group and discussed with our legal team and precisely what Lisa said. I, I think that, um, you know, what, what the consensus was among us was that if there's a work that was done, I think it's a case by case. Obviously, if you're treating a cancer patient or if you're treating somebody who's in who absolutely has no means or has no insurance, we're lucky to be practicing in a mandated state. But, you know, that's exactly what Lisa said. All the patients are sort of being given this information booklet before starting. We discuss with them, uh, finance discusses their part, and they are fully aware and understand what the situation might be should they test positive. Obviously, their treatment has to be discontinued at that point when it gets discontinued the RMA might not be able to reimburse them for their, you know, investments until that point if certain things have already happened in the cycle, such as embryology, you know, that work has happened or it was a retrieval, but we couldn't, you know, do anything with the eggs or, or something like that. It's a very hard decision. And, and I just feel like it, it's, you know, for, for all of us, I mean, these are such sad conversations to have because obviously, you know, the, the unemployment rate has been raging and, and the whole world has been just financially going down and economically, it's a very, very hard situation. So more like less from a legal aspect of it, but more from a humane aspect of it, this is something that I think it needs to be also handled on a sort of individual basis. You have to take into consideration where the patient's coming from, what is their situation. I mean, We've donated cycles many times before and um, for certain situations before COVID, before all of this. So it's an you know, individual scenario that also counts, I think. Dr. Martin asks who's responsible if they test positive after they conceive. I imagine it's the same answer. You refer them to their PCP. Maybe he's asking if this is pre seven and a half week, pre 10 week, whenever they graduate from their REI, if they test positive and then some of their care is still scheduled. Maybe he's, maybe he's asking, do you see someone when they're still positive or that if they need to come in for an ultrasound, they haven't moved on to their OB. Uh, what about a situation like that? I mean, I would think that you would have to look at how you can safely hand them off to somebody. Do you have to do that initial ultrasound, for example, to make sure that the fetus is where it should be, that you don't have an ectopic or anything like that? Um, and perhaps in the past when we've had infected patients, I've had practices that have used clean rooms in the hospitals to do those exams and not bring them into your practice. Something to consider. Have you even talked about that in your practice? That's a great question. It's a very good question. And we certainly have talked about it because 
I mean, we monitor weekly. Nine days after the transfer would be the first pregnancy test, then 48 hours later to ensure appropriate rise of the beta ACG, after which we follow with weekly ultrasounds. Are those weekly ultrasounds really clinically needed? Not really. And as Lisa mentioned, the one that's really, there are two that are really uh, essential for any obstetrical practice or like early obstetrical practices we, we as REIs provide, which is you want to make sure it's in the right place, right? You don't want, you, you even in naturally conceived pregnancies, I always bring them in for five-week ultrasound just to ensure it's not an ectopic pregnancy. Ectopic pregnancy is a surgical emergency that doesn't have to end as badly if you treat with methotrexate when you know that it's not in the right place. And sometimes the laboratory might not show it. Some ectopics have perfect rise and then all of a sudden she has an ectopic. The other one is seven-week ultrasound that, you know, we want to see if there's a heartbeat or... So I think the crucial or the most difficult situation in this regard would be if you have a patient that is testing positive, yet you haven't identified an intrauterine pregnancy. All the other ultrasounds are actually not that essential, right? The patient's not in danger. If you documented intrauterine pregnancy, you might as well discharge her at five weeks and she can wait for her obstetrician and make sure that, you know, they wouldn't have, if it was a natural conception, they wouldn't have seen her, you know, before, before 10 weeks anyway. And you can monitor progesterone or you can just wean her off progesterone as you would usually do. The problem is this, this sort of micro scenario where you might have a patient who tests positive before documentation of an intrauterine pregnancy. And, you know, I guess that also might go case by case, you know, as you're saying, I think that's a very good idea, potentially sending them to uh, urgent care. Obviously, you don't want to divert any resources from providing um, care to COVID infected patients. But at the end of the day, it might be something to consider to basically evaluate them at a different setting, somewhere where there's COVID raging already, which is an urgent care or a hospital, and basically just making sure that they have you know, or if they, they would have symptoms, like say she starts bleeding or she starts having abdominal pain, then she would have to go. Do we think these measures apply outside the U.S. in countries like Canada? My guess would be almost everything, everything would. The, the variance of legal liability uh, would certainly be different depending on jurisdiction, but it seems like most of what you've talked about applies in, in other countries. Can you offer some insight? Well, what we're talking about is infection control and patient safety. I don't think that changes no matter where you're located. Um, you're right, the legal liability may change based upon jurisdiction, but when you get right down to it, taking care of your patients, taking care of your staff, I would love to see that be the same no matter where you're sitting. Uh, I want to thank you both uh, for coming. Is there, is there any parting wisdom that you'd like to leave with as folks are continually revisiting their standard operating procedures of what they need to consider as they make and reformulate these? I would just add that, you know, even though it seems to have slowed down, we're still very fluid. There's still a lot we don't know. And that basic patient safety and infection control is what we're looking at. So keep that in the forefront and on the back end of it, take good care of each other. I worry about acceleration of burnout. And as we're getting ready for Nurses Week, I want to say thank you to all the nurses and nurse extenders and say, hang in there, everybody, um, and just keep working together and keep talking to each other, as Giovanna said. I mean, that's the best thing we can do is share information and help each other. 
I mean, I couldn't agree more with what Lisa just said. I think these times are extremely important. It's extremely important to be kind to each other because everybody, everybody's being hit, maybe not to the same extent, but everybody's being hit, everybody's suffering right now, and we really need to be unified, not just as reproductive doctors or, you know, reproductive you know, people in, 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 within this field of medicine, but generally as humans, we just have to be really unified um, by, you know, I really enjoy, as I said, Griffin, I really enjoy um, reading and I learned so much from your, from your organization and from your podcast. And, but one thing that I keep reading in, in your interviews, especially the more recent ones, which is the hope of all of us is that, well, what are we going to do when this is over and when this is over, and when this is behind us? And I just feel like, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I'm not sure if this will be over or if we're going to reach a certain low constant and some of the elements of what we're and how we're practicing right now might remain for, for a longer time. And this might be our new normal. And so I think that, you know, finding um, clever and, you know, inventive ways of, of handling these situations uh, I think it's a very positive thing. And I think that, you know, as we said, you know, stone by stone, sometimes you, you can't have everything figured out and, in, in, you know, in a, in a completely new viral pandemic that we haven't had in, in the past 800 years. But I think that being inventive, trying to think outside of the box, because we might not have all the answers and, and just getting used to this new normal. That's a good closing note, Giovanna. If we know anything from the Great Recession or from September 11th, some things go back to normal and some things never do. Thank you both so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Dr. Lekovich, Giovanna, Mrs. Reinhardt, Lisa, thank you both so much for coming on the show. <laughs> thank and educating you for having me. You've been listening to the Coronavirus Business Response Series on Inside Reproductive Health. If you find our free resources to be valuable, we ask that you share this episode on social media or with a colleague in the fertility field. Subscribe for the latest insights on managing and owning an IVF center or fertility business during the COVID-19 pandemic at fertilitybridge.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts.